actually, um, I woke up Saturday morning. Saturday morning, and my leg hurt. I was sleeping in a strange place, and no reason why that happened. Well, there's a 72 reasons. They're all years. And a hip replacement. It could be something. You know, maybe I could draw a line there somewhere. But um, I can walk and everything else. I just can't stand up as you realize I've always singing for a long time. So I'm going to choose to do this. Ah, boy, does that feel good. <laughs> so <clears throat> typically, I would have my wife up here to read the text, but it's so short, the trip didn't seem worth it. <laughs> so I am going to read the text this morning. It's from Isaiah 11, and it's just verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to expand on that in a little bit, but let me start out by reading that. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, the word of the Lord. So I wanted to build a little bit on Ned's. I loved Ned's history lesson last week. So before we head deep into the text, I wanted to just put us back into that sort of context. You might remember the map he put up where we learned <clears throat> of the nation of Assyria and the threat they, are to, they, are, they were to Jerusalem and Israel. And in chapter 7 through 12, Isaiah gives the people of Israel and Judah hope and speaks about the coming Messiah. Even though God is going to punish his people, his mercy is ultimately going to win out over their sins. He understands their conditions, and this is why... This is why Isaiah tells them he's going to send Christ so they can have a way from their broken condition. The nations of this earth during this period are judged, and God proclaims judgment on the whole entire world. The rest of Isaiah really goes back and forth between God's judgments and his mercy. And I wanted to read the passage before this one that we just read to understand a little bit about where the stumps came from. So I'm going to read um, from the 10th chapter of Isaiah. The last few verses. My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up, lift up a club against you, as Egypt did. Very soon my anger will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. In that day, their burden will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because you see the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the vows with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one have grown so fat. Sort of a, a this is where the stumps come from. <laughs> they leveled the forests. And it's a, sort of a depressing picture. You can imagine them going to your favorite Christmas tree farm. And you get there, and it's just a field of stumps. That's bad news. Maybe it's good news for Balsam Hill, who is a purveyor of artificial trees. Because <laughs> Israel's faced with um, crushed dreams that after decades of battles and decay, they will end in their exile. They're being removed from their homelands and taken to Babylon. But in the midst of this sort of picture of all these stumps in this sad-looking landscape, there's one stump that has a branch erupting from it. The image of Jesse has a history 
in the art and traditions of the church. I, was, I wanted to put a picture up. It's called the Tree of Jesse. And, and unbeknownst to me, everybody seems to know about this except me. But um, this is a, a fairly common thing in medieval churches to have a depiction of Jesus as growing out of, from Jesse, the father of David. So a, a Jesse tree, and this particular one is from a, an abbey in France from around the year 1250. So I love the fact that we're not, we're not so unique. You know, we, sometimes as the church, we can lose sight of the fact that, you know, we, we just erupted this year or something, and we're special. But the church has been realizing the significance of this for a long time. And in, in so many churches in Europe have a, some piece of stained glass or something that commemorates Jesse, this, the uh, stump from which Jesus came. In the 20th century, that, that tree, the Jesse tree, um, became a symbol of Abbott in a lot of churches. A, a lot of people, a lot of churches now have a tree. Sometimes the tree is decorated piece by piece and sort of like an advent calendar. My wife told me we had an advent calendar that was Jesse tree. That's how oblivious I am to the world around me. Um, and in some places, they use it to collect winter clothing for the poor, and people attach hats and mittens. This is just to say that it's not just us who are realizing this, just me for the first time, but the church really does celebrate the fact <clears throat> that it came from Jesse. So why Jesse? I mean, really, if you look in the lineage, you could have picked some other characters. Why Jesse? I'll give you an example why Jesse. If you had a great-grandfather named John who was a farmer and raised livestock in Missouri, and someone asked about your roots, would you point to that great-grandfather? Or would you point to John's son, Harry, last name Truman, your grandfather, who happened to become the first non-college graduate of the United States, president of the United States, was reelected after serving the balance of the term of FDR, who died 82 days into his office. Uh, and if you're anything like me, you're going to say, if somebody says, where are you from? You're going to say, well, my grandfather was Harry Truman. Unless there's things you didn't like about Harry. But there's probably no doubt that you're going to mention Harry as your rootstock. If you're like me, you'll figure out some way to work it into the conversation. Well, Isaiah, when sending this encouraging news to the nations of Israel and Judah, he doesn't refer back to David, who was the king. David had the resume. He could play the harp. He wrote a lot of psalms. He slayed a giant, Goliath, who was the champion of the Israel's enemy, the Philistines. He became a favorite of Saul, who was the king of Israel. And when he was 30, he was anointed king over all of Israel and Judah. Following that rise to power, he took back Jerusalem, established it as Israel's capital, returned the Ark of the Covenant there, dancing in the streets with it. And that became the central point of the Israelite religion. So there's David. Wouldn't it have made sense to say, stump of David? But Isaiah cites Jesse as a stump, from which Jesus will eventually come. David's in that line. We know that, of course, he's the son of Jesse. But it's Jesse who's celebrated in the traditions of the church. I don't know the answer why he picked Jesse, but it seems to make sense when you think about the incarnation message, that humility is more important than a resume. That the point isn't that 
he got what he deserved, Jesus, because he was David's heir. No, it's much more humble than that. The work that Jesus comes to do is done in the, in the humblest of ways. And it's not, not only at Christmas, but his entire ministry. And so this starts it. In the, in, the, in the picture that I put up before, you don't have to put it up again, but in those pictures, David's barely mentioned in a lot of the art that represents the tree of Jesse. And, and I just think it's a, an illustration of the fact that this starts, begins, and ends in humility. And we'll come back to that whole picture of humility and participating in the incarnation. I'm going to tell you a story about a grapefruit tree. This is when I go all fireside chat on you. The, uh, the, um, my wife and I, when we first got married, I, it might not have been our first breakfast together, but it was very early. We took a seed out of a grapefruit we were eating for breakfast, and we put it in a pot of dirt. And that thing grew to be about, would you say, six feet or more. Became a royal pain in the neck to bring back into the house every winter. And it looked just like a grapefruit tree. Have you ever seen a grapefruit tree growing? It's got spikes on it that could impale you. So bringing it back into the house was no thrill. Walking by it when it was in the dining room meant that you're probably going to catch something on it if you got too close. And so in every way possible, it looked like a grapefruit tree, except for one. Never grew one grapefruit. <laughs> An important distinction. And, and then I started to go down this road, and I said, why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Grapefruits can, in fact, grow from seeds. Maybe you need to live in Florida, but... A lot of fruit can't do that. Uh, I started reading a little bit about apples. Don't ask me why I got off on this tangent, but I did. And the only way to ensure that you get the same apple that you want, like a red delicious, let's use that example, is actually graft a branch from into a, a red delicious tree. If you just take a seed from a red delicious apple, plant it in the ground, it's very likely you won't get a red delicious apple. And, and I think... What we, actually you get if you use the seed is something that's inferior genetically and probably um, more likely to be disease-ridden if you don't use a graft. It's the only reliable way to produce apples that are the uniform, the way you want them to be. And so <clears throat> without um, suffering you with metaphor abuse, um, it seems that there's a lesson here. And I'd like to take a look at Romans to make sort of a connection to it. The book of Romans, <clears throat> excuse me, talks about grafting. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. 
After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will those, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? This passage is pretty clear. Don't consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, the challenge here is uh, this feels kind of threatening, but I don't think you have to consider it as a threat, but instead sort of a confrontation. Where have you decided to plant yourself? What do you believe? Where is it that you go to make decisions about right and wrong, how to love, how to forgive yourselves and others? Where are you going to make those decisions? Too often these days, Unfortunately, the church becomes obscures the real message, which is, what's your decision about who Jesus is and what he means? And what he means to where you plant yourself. Without roots, you can be swept into dark places and you can have what appears to be virtue become something else. It looks just like a grapefruit tree. I read a fictional book recently that used the term near enemies. Anybody who can tell me where I got that from after the service can come talk to me, and, and I'd be so proud of you. And it, it, it used the term near enemies when you attempt to evaluate somebody's character. The way sort of darkness creeps into everyday experience is often really subtle. Virtues that are close to their dark side, what looks like a grapefruit tree, might just be a thorny green plant. I'm just going to talk about two of these near enemies. First is pity and compassion. Compassion is when you feel deep sympathy for somebody, sorrow for another who has experienced pain or difficulties. Sympathy is the feeling that you would like to see or take action to help others in distress. Empathy is the ability to understand what they're going through. When you feel compassion for somebody, you want to go out and help them without anything in return. Pity, which is so easily confused with compassion. It's just that feeling of sort of condescension for somebody else's failings. Is an expression of judgment for somebody who's inferior to yourself. A person pitying may feel that they are superior to others due to their circumstances. A pity person may also feel that they aren't, that the other person isn't good enough. That that other person is somehow inferior to you and therefore deserve to be pitied. The second one is attachment versus love. This one's maybe not as subtle, because when you're attached to somebody, you're sort of the, the leech. You're focused on ways in which they can make you happy. You become heavily dependent upon the partner, and you may even try to control him or her to avoid being abandoned. And you do that instead of confronting your own issues. You use your partner to improve your self-esteem. I do that all the time. Walking into church this morning, I, because of my leg, I was limping. And I said to Nance, all I want you to do is tell me how sorry you feel for me. <laughs> and if you know my wife at all, I was barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> She's a very compassionate person. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but... 
when you love somebody, you listen to them. You respond to their needs. You're focused on what is best for them. You support their dreams and hopes and trust them with your deepest thoughts. It, it reminds me of my wedding vow, and it's convicting to think about. Each of these virtues that we talked about, love and compassion, can sort of cross from light into darkness and go back and forth. What could be selfless, selfless acts morph into selfish ones, and we seem to always be bouncing around in these near enemies. I would say that the common quality that's sort of foundational to being on the right side of this equation is, is humility. It's the participation in the Christmas message that offers the place to be rooted in that love and humility. I have a quote on there from Dostoevsky. Loving humility is marvelously strong. The strongest of all things, there is nothing like it. Matthew, who is... Um, not the guy you might invite to church to do your Christmas sermon after you hear this one, because he includes in his telling of the Christmas story a reminder from the prophet Jeremiah that not all is silent and peaceful. Let me read this from the book of Matthew. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then that was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. If, as we sort of consider the, what it means to be in the fruitful, fruitful branch of Jesus, we struggle in a degree of darkness all the time. It comes in a lot of forms. Circumstances in our lives that are oppressive, sickness, death, broken relationships, and finally our own self-awareness of our shortcomings, our impatience, our lack of love, our inability to forgive. All these, all these things, welcome to Christmas. All of these can seem to overwhelm and somehow deny our rooting. But this is what Christmas message is about. Out of darkness, a light comes. I thought a lot about all the places, artists, musicians, etc., that, that produce art out of great places of darkness. And this past week, my, one, of, one of my grandchildren, my granddaughter, um, goes to a college in Ohio, and they were broadcasting their um, concert of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So we set up in our cozy living room with the fire on, and and turned on and watched her, because all we focused on was this small girl with long red hair up in the upper left corner. Even though the, everybody else was singing, we just cared about her. But, but it was a great concert, and it's an amazing piece of music. It's an hour and a half long, for those of you who heard it. It's, we use some of the melody in our hymnal for a particular hymn. But the amazing thing about it was that for... Ten years prior to that, Beethoven became deaf, profoundly deaf. Yet he produced this music in the midst of that darkness. So deaf that when it was performed and he was sitting in the front row, he could not hear the people behind him applauding. So they turned him around so he could watch them applaud. 
That's how deaf he was. When he, so go home and listen to Beethoven's Ninth, Ninth Symphony and think about somebody composing that out of deafness. So a lot of times, darkness is overcome by light. The prophecy of Isaiah that we read about this morning was 700 years before it was realized. And even then, it came into this culture of darkness. Another experience I had recently, I went to a, we went to a play called Every Brilliant Thing. Highly recommend it. It's a, a one-man show down at the Arden. And the actor was portraying something that was partly um, fi- nonfiction. It was a story of a boy, eight-year-old boy, whose mother was deeply depressed, um, had tried to take her own life a few times. And his way of handling it was he wrote down a list of every brilliant thing, things that shone through this darkness. Number one on his list was ice cream. And then he went down. He kept this list up in six figures, up to six figures. And every once in a while, he would share it, attempt to share it with his mother to try to arouse her out of her depression. So it made me think, and I, I forgot to bring my list up. I have about 800 things. I'm going to recite them all this morning. No, I, seriously not. But um, it did make me think about instances in my own life where light has shone through, where in spite of darkness, light has shone through. And a few of them are easy, celebrating my 50th wedding anniversary with my wife. A lot of them were funerals. Surprisingly enough, I thought about, when I saw it, I thought about Al Grove's funeral. And afterwards, our family went out <clears throat> and shared stories about Al Groves. He was like a big brother to me. And, and I think about that light coming out of that darkness of, what, of him being taken from us much too soon. And then I, the list could be endless of things that I've seen. I look around this room, and I know there are lives in here that are examples, illustrations of light coming out of darkness. The story of Christmas comes to us in our grief and our darkness. And it comes again and again. The message of the child is that if we receive him in humility, he won't stop coming. When you're discouraged or disheartened, it is, it is for that moment he has come. He does not wait around for you to come begging. He comes near over and over. It is not with conditions. He does not stop and say, weren't you just here a while ago with this problem? Come on. Haven't you gotten over that yet? It, but it's the opposite of that. He doesn't wait for us to come knocking. He comes and seeks intimacy with us. He comes after us in many different ways and forms, some of which I talked about. I'm sure you each would have your own list of those things. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I just have a few more things to say, but they'll be quick. So you guys can come up. The... Um, I am a Christmas junkie. I, I really am. I, I love Christmas music. I've been listening to it long before Thanksgiving. Um, and it, I have rules about it. You can't listen to the really corny stuff. And I say, 
Andy Williamson at all to post-Thanksgiving, but pre-Thanksgiving, anything goes. Why is it so encouraging to me? Because it, it reminds us that there's hope somewhere, right? And I don't think, I don't think that it's wrong. I think it's right to know that that hope is a taste of the hope we will have eventually that will be fulfilled. It's not a tease. It's not a GC is really going to be good later on kind of thing. It's, a, it's good now because it, it reminds us of what it will be like eventually. It's a taste of what's to come. Eventually, good will beat evil. Eventually, grief and sorrow and tears will go away. And we participate in that today in the life of Christ, that he came to us through this birth. And so that's why we can celebrate Christmas. Don't be embarrassed about enjoying what comes around it. It's a taste of what's to come. We'll put lights up because they remind us that lights push back darkness. I wanted to end, um, not with me babbling on, but there's a Denise Levertov. It's one of my, if you do one thing this Christmas, buy a book of Denise Levertov's poems. And I'm going to read one of her poems to end the service. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own cells that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature, vainly sure it, and no other is godlike. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. 